0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode four of the Breaking Britain podcast here at King's College London. I'm Dr Russell Foster, a scholar of political science and political history and I'm looking into the relationship between Britain and Europe uh, over the last hundred years, various different dimensions of it and of course we live in exciting times concerning uh, the relationship between the two. I'm the co-host of this podcast and I'm joined by my colleague Dr Alex Clarkson. Hi! Who also joins us from the same uh, from the same department and uh, Alex, uh, do you want to say a few words about what you're researching?
1: Yeah, I work on uh, the European Union, so I'm looking at it from the slightly different, from, from the opposite perspective almost, the European Union and how migration and your border systems link the core states of the European Union, which I tend to count as the states within the Eurozone and and within Schengen, and now increasingly foreign policy and defense cooperation, those core states are linked to states on the border areas around the EU, or border states around the EU, what we call neighboring states, through migration systems, through security, through defense, and through border management. So so in a sense, my work converges a lot with uh, Russell's in terms of thinking about how the EU relates to countries around it, and That's how we sort of got into this podcast in terms of thinking about not just Britain's relationship with the EU, but how Britain's internal development is um, going to affect its relationship with the EU going from, from now on.
0: So looking at the same phenomenon from two very different perspectives, from a British perspective and from an EU perspective. And this podcast is being hosted um, in the Europe's Borderlands Research Group at the Department of European and International Studies King's College London. Because now that Britain is no longer in the European Union, but on its doorstep, we are now uh, one of Europe's borderlands. And today we're joined um, by Professor Roger Anwan Scully, Professor of Political Science at the University of Cardiff. Uh, Roger, uh, you're also uh, chair of the Political Studies Association—an uh, enormous task. So, thank you very much for uh, for joining us today, for taking time out to uh, to discuss uh, the political situation regarding Wales. Now, a couple of your uh, of your books illustrate the depth of your research experience into this. You are the author of *Becoming Europeans: Attitudes, Behaviour, and Socialisation in the European Parliament*, and. Uh, a second magnum opus, Wales Says Yes, Devolution and the 2011 Welsh Referendum. And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, with Roger today. So much of the discussions around Brexit and the aftermath of Brexit have been looking at the English, uh, Scotland with possible Indy Ref 2 and the island of Ireland uh, with the possibility of uh, the irredentism of Northern Ireland and Ireland and the unification uh, of the two states. Wales is often forgotten in these discussions uh, and so it's a real pleasure to be joined by Roger. Thank you everyone for joining us today and let's get started. So Roger, thank you very much for joining us and I suppose the first way, the first place to start would be to ask what are the historical developments and the specific legacies over the last 100 years that have shaped the trajectory of current Welsh devolution?
2: Well thanks. Um, I think I'd actually suggest that we maybe even need to take a longer historical perspective than the past century. Chao on Lai famously said when he was asked about the Impact of the French Revolution—that it, it's far too early to tell—and I think you know, we, <laughs> we we need to really go back beyond the past century, possibly until you know the 12th, 13th century uh, in in the common era, um, to to really understand some of the factors that shape Welsh evolution and the nature of Welsh politics. Um, J- James Mitchell of Edinburgh University, um, very appropriately in a, an excellent book some years ago, talked about the UK as a state of unions with an emphasis on the plural there and I think you know to have any understanding of contemporary Welsh politics we do need to understand as kind of a kind of a core factor that the way that Wales was unified with England was completely different from the unions that um, were applied in relation to Scotland and then to and then to Ireland. Um, you know, Scotland for instance mm. Negotiated an agreement, albeit under some US, with, with the English kingdom, an agreement, a, a treaty of union, which retained many um, distinctively um, Scottish institutions like an education system and a distinct church and a distinct legal system. None of that was the case with Wales. Um, Wales was essentially conquered and incorporated into the Kingdom of England. And you know, that has meant that the nature of any Welsh distinctiveness has been. Very different, um, far less institutionally grounded until until quite recently. I think that has to be the kind of the, the foundation point for any sort of sensible discussion and understanding of Wales and Welsh politics. That its relationship to uh, government in London and and kind of the, the nature of the English Welsh Union is fundamentally different and has been for many centuries from anything which applies to the other non English nations of the UK.
1: Just sort of just to follow on from that question, I mean if if we're looking at the kind of a long-term trajectory, is there sort of any kind of seminal moment in the last 40-50 years of politics that you think shifted momentum in Wales towards an acceptance or a desire for an assembly reform of devolved settlement?
2: Well as, as I quite often say when I'm talking to groups of students, um, to understand like why we have Welsh devolution now, even though it was rejected more or less four to one in a referendum in 1979, I think you have to understand one really important thing that happened to Wales um, not long after that 1979 uh, referendum and basically what happened was Margaret Thatcher happened to (laughs) Wales. Margaret Thatcher (laughs) just a few weeks after the 1979 referendum became prime minister and I think it was, you know, the the impact of her policies on a Wales that had never voted for the Conservatives, you know, the extraordinarily harsh impact of those policies. Um, Yeah. But people still debate to this day, you know, whether Thatcherism was overall a good thing for Britain, but I think there's, there's much less room for debate about the fact that Thatcherism impacted extraordinarily harshly on much of the economy and society of Wales. And that did start to have an impact um, in the dominant Welsh Labour Party and in, in Welsh society in changing some attitudes. So, I mean, I think, you know, if you look at, say, uh, you know, if you look at the picture in the 1970s, it wasn't that there was less Welsh identity then than there was in the 1990s or in the present day. But what changed after Thatcher was that more people started to think that That Welsh identity should be reflected in distinctive Welsh political institutions. There was just about enough of the change to carry that towards a a very narrow majority in the 1997 referendum. And then there were further changes um, in the years after that, such that um, some autonomy for Wales became the clear majority position from about the year 2000 onwards.
0: Yeah, well, um, just to follow up on that, I mean, we're talking about um, the the differences in political culture between um, well, uh, Welsh and British politics in the post nineteen seventy nine era, and you talked there about the uh, the proposed referendum for Welsh devolution in nineteen seventy nine, and then uh, followed up by Mrs. Thatcher's government and the rise of um, a more uh, a much more visible rise of Welsh national politics in the years after Thatcher. So I suppose this this raises the question of how political culture. Um, relating to Welsh um, devolution and Welsh institutions, how the political culture of Welsh devolution differs from politics going on at Westminster. And, you know, to what extent are these political cultural differences between Wales and Westminster, uh, to what extent are these actually a source of real tension between Cardiff and London?
2: Well, after there was the 97 very narrow vote to create uh, a Welsh Assembly, as it was then called, you know, there was then a process of establishing the institution and a lot of the kind of driving mentality um, that you can see very clearly in, in the design of uh, what's now the Senedd um, was to make it more or less as distinct from as unlike the Westminster Parliament as possible. Now, some people have argued that mm. s- some of that was really based on perhaps a, an overly crude, overly simplistic caricature of, of Westminster politics but nonetheless you know, everything from the shape of the chamber um, you know, just kind of co- conduct within um, the chamber and you know, people calling each other by their first names um, th- things like that, the whole basis of the committee structure that was set up almost everything was seemingly starting from the standpoint of how could we design this institution to be as unlike the Westminster Parliament as possible and mm-hmm. a lot of that still, continues today in the way that the Senate functions. I think that's a big part of our political, cultural difference, a self-conscious distancing from how things are done at Westminster. I think the other main um, political, cultural difference, though, and one that has been increasingly salient and important since 2010 has been the fact that um, you know, basically the political centre of gravity in Wales is and has been for a very long time um, further to the left than it has been um, in in England. Um, and you see this not so much in um, political values. If you try and look at values, and various people have done studies of this, that you know, on kind of core value measures, you don't see the populations of Scotland and Wales being much to the left of that of England. But nonetheless, they tend to vote more to the left and have done in Scotland's case consistently for ooh, a round of certainly since at least the 1950s, in Wales' case, since the 1850s. I mean, the the last general election when the Conservatives got a higher share of the vote in Wales than in England was in 1859. (laughs) And every general election since the Conservatives have done worse in Wales, the Labour Party have come first in both votes and seats every one of the last 27 UK general elections in Wales. And I think increasingly since the Conservatives came back into power... At Westminster in 2010, and particularly since they've been governing, Wallace alone from 2015, that sort of self-conscious, not just that we're going to be distinct from Westminster as a type of institution, but we're going to be very distinct in terms of our political values, that that has really come to the fore.
1: How far has this kind of distinct political culture, the Senate, uh, filtered down to Welsh political culture as a whole? I mean, obviously, Wales is also a very diverse society. There are different regions and different urban cultures within Wales as well. But is, 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 is this something that's more sort of something that at the Senate level or is it something that shapes the way people behave, think, vote, debate uh, in wider Welsh society? Well,
2: I think you can certainly see um, amongst much of the sort of Welsh political elite and kind of the broader social and cultural elite uh, in, in Welsh society, there's often been um, quite a strong sense that, you know, we are more progressive, we are more left-wing, uh, more outward-looking and internationalist than, than the English. And in that context, of course, the fact that Wales voted for Brexit came as a really jarring blow to many people's sort of self-image of what, what the Welsh politically were as a nation.
1: And so, so just just follow on on that a little bit. I mean, if if we think about this as a as a as a kind of Wales interacting with uh, these different political cultures and these different social environments. I mean, obviously, it's op- not operating in a vacuum. There are other developments happening. Um, on the island of Ireland, in, 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 in the northern Irish part of the, the island of Ireland, in Scotland, of course, in England as well. I mean, is, is Welsh devolution something quite distinct in its interaction mm. between a Welsh uh, political culture mm. and Welsh nationalism, something quite distinct mm. in that process? Or how has it in, been interacted with and been influenced by Irish, Scottish, and perhaps even English nationalist traditions? Well,
2: I, I think certainly the operation of Welsh devolution thus far... Um, has, has, has mostly not been enormously affected by um, how things have been working in, in the other non-English nations. Um, but I mean, a lot of that, I think, has been about how um, Westminster and Whitehall have, have sought to govern the evolution, and largely through kind of a set of essentially separate bilateral relationships. Um, London, Edinburgh, London, Belfast, you know, London, Cardiff. Um, I think also, though, I mean, you can you can see in in, in Welsh public opinion until until pretty recently there was you know, really remarkably little feed through from uh, events elsewhere into Welsh attitudes. So, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people I know, kind of um, sort of Welsh nationalists, got very excited around the time of the Scottish referendum and thought this would have a big impact on attitudes in Wales. And as far as we could tell, there was more or less nothing um, in terms of measurable impact. Um, there has, in the last couple of years, started to be um, a noticeable uptick in interest in and public support for. Welsh independence. But I think that is not so much about factors specific to Scotland or Northern Ireland, but about sort of pan UK factors, in particular the handling of Brexit and more recently, to some extent, the handling of
0: COVID.
1: Just, I mean, just to. On, sorry, Russell. Go. Yeah, if
0: I could follow up on that with um, with a question relating to Welsh nationalism. I mean, we're talking that you you mentioned there that basically the Tories haven't had a, a foothold in Wales since 1859. Now, I suppose a, a question I'm curious about is why hasn't Plaid Cymru done well in Wales? You know, why hasn't Plaid seen the sort of um, surge in support that the SNP has seen? And in relation to to the historical dominance of Labour in Wales, from what you've seen how is Welsh Labour adapting to the post-Corbyn mm. and the post-Brexit period? OK, there's, there's two
2: very interesting questions there, but I think two quite uh, distinct questions. I mean, I think if we look at Plaid Cymru and its relative fortunes relating to, you know, say, those of the SNP, I mean, it, it's easy to forget a few things. For instance, in the first you know, 30, 40 years of their life, Out of two very unsuccessful parties, if anything, Plaid Cymru is probably marginally the more successful than the SNP Mm. um, most of the time. Um, The picture started to change in Scotland, of course, with the discovery of large amounts of oil um, off off the Scottish coast of the North Sea. Um, But even actually, if we go to the very first devolved elections in 1999, a, a great statistic, which hardly anyone knows, Is that in those first devolved elections, across the two ballots, Plaid Cymru's aggregate vote share in Wales was actually higher than that of the SNP in Scotland, (laughs) um, which, which these days is almost unimaginable. Now, what has happened since is partly and significant part, I think, a story of the SNP being extraordinarily well led for much of that time by some and whatever else you might think of them, extremely talented politicians in Alex Salmond and and Nicola Sturgeon, and Ply Cymru not being nearly so well led by perhaps some rather less astute politicians. But the other part of, I think, the divergence in the fortunes has to do with, I think, the second of your your questions, which is about the Labour Party, and in particular, I think, um, Welsh Labour, having messed up the first devolved elections in 1999. Um, then, from early 2000, after they defenestrated Alan Michael and replaced him with the much more appealing Rodri Morgan, mm. Welsh Labour have basically consistently managed the politics of devolution much more shrewdly than Scot- Scottish Labour did. In particular, under both Rodri Morgan and his successor, Carwin Jones, Welsh Labour managed to kind of straddle this divide of keeping on board a lot of the kind of more strongly unionist element of their support, many of whom perhaps might be sort of more culturally British or English, but also managed to appeal pretty successfully to the sort of soft cultural nationalists within Wales. Um, I think helped by the fact that both Roderick Morgan and Carwyn Jones were first language Welsh speakers, you know, mm. could communicate equally fluently in in English and Welsh. But, you know, that they effectively kind of managed to steal a lot of the ground that might otherwise have been Ply Cymru's. Whereas in in Scotland, I think even before the 2014 referendum, the Scottish Labour Party had become too pigeonholed in much of the public mind, as sort of the tribunes of Westminster, as as really speaking up for the interests of, of London. London Labour as as the SNP often successfully mm-hmm. branded them. And, um, you know, infamously, Johan Lament, when she resigned, Mm -hmm. said that, you know, the Scottish party has been treated by Labour in London as a branch office. And Welsh (laughs) Labour has, for the most part, been successfully able to avoid that perception and have a more effective Welsh branding. And I think that's been a big part of squeezing the distinctive political space for Plaid Cymru as a think of political space that was successfully opened up by the SNP.
1: I, I think that there's, there's an interesting issue there that you, that you pointed out. And one of the things that we're often faced with in, in our own department and, and what we do um, in European studies is explaining to partners and colleagues in, in, in the EU so the the different way, the ways in which Britain functions. And one issue that always pops up is, interestingly, the Welsh language and, yeah. and the fact that many actually counterparts in European states don't really necessarily grasp the importance and strength and depth of the Welsh language in Welsh politics. But what role do you think that these Welsh language issues have played in shaping the space and shaping the Welsh political culture? And what what impact might they have that the issue of the Welsh language have now in the way in which developments elsewhere in the UK are perceived?
2: Well, I think the Welsh language and the sort of broader culture that's associated with it has been absolutely fundamental to the maintenance of a distinctive Welsh Uh, sense of nationhood and distinctive Welsh identity. Absent the sort of distinctive institutions that you had in Scotland, it was really primarily um, the language and the associated culture that kept a sense of distinctive Welshness alive and and into the 20th century. The maintenance of that distinctive language and culture was clearly key to the establishment of Plaid Cymru. And I I think subsequently, though, I mean, the, the language has both been a source of strength for Plaid Cymru and the Welsh nationalist movement. At the same time, as also, I think, sometimes been something of restriction to them, because many sort of um, people who identify as Welsh but who are not Welsh speakers, or at least not fluent Welsh speakers, have felt somewhat alienated from a, a movement that they, they've often seen as being kind of you know, too much being kind of a movement for for the cymru cum as I know, you know, the, the, the Welsh-speaking Welsh. Um, and I think that's spe- been that's been a, a problem that Ply Cymru have only rarely been able to overcome that sort of um, thing of being seen as a party that effectively speaks up for um, those who speak Welsh, but also for those who don't um, or, or only speak it very much as a second language. I mean, these days, you know, the kind of the social profile of the language is is gradually changing. It's becoming less a language concentrated in specific um rural geographic communities in the north and west it's it's actually growing the language amongst younger people with a, a growth of welsh language schooling um and that's often um you see some of the highest rates of growth in in welsh language competence in some of the more urban areas of south wales uh, these days i mean i think you know you were saying there though that you, know, you think lots of people outside the UK don't understand the importance of the Welsh language. I think that's also the case for lots of people <laughs> inside uh, the UK. Yes. You know, They they come to Wales for the first time and they're stunned by bilingual road signs and um, cash point machines that give you the opportunity to get your <laughs> cash out in Welsh and um, you know, things like that which you know somebody like me who lived for almost 13 years in Aberystwyth you just get used to as being a normal part of life. I mean it is I think I personally think rather sad actually that for lots of people in the UK there is a lack of appreciation and a lack of understanding, a lack of shared pride actually as well in the yeah. um, in the distinctive um, historic native languages of of these islands, um, you know, Gaelic in, in, in Scotland, Irish, Welsh, Cornish and others. I mean uh, personally I've long felt even since before I came to live in Wales more than 20 years ago that this ought to be treasured as part of our shared cultural inheritance, and for the most part, it isn't. I, just I suppose so if
0: there's one thing we can, uh, if there's one thing we can rely on, it's, uh, it's the English sense of parochialism. I mean, uh, we, growing up in the northeast, I remember being aware of, uh, of an, uh, an old Northumbrian uh, dialect which just mm-hmm. died off. As you said, something that we just don't consider. And I suppose this speaks to the relationship between Welsh political culture and, and um, the other nations of, uh, of the UK. I mean, we've been talking a, a lot there about the unique history of, uh, of Wales's integration, in air quotes, uh, conquest by the English, You know, uh, the unique nature of Wales's relationship with the UK. And I suppose the question I want to ask, and it'll be my final question so, uh, because I've got to go and teach, so I'll have to, uh, <laughs> uh, I'll have to listen to your answer. Uh, I'll have to actually listen to our podcast series to get the answer. Um, I suppose if we look at the relationship between the four component nations of, uh, of the UK, you know, the sort of awkward family squabble, uh, what do you, th- this is a little bit of a, of a hypothetical, but what do you think the impact would be for Welsh politics um, at party levels, at devolution levels, if Scotland did come very, very close to independence this year? Um, on which note, I'm afraid I'll have to head away. So thank you, Roger, and I look forward to hearing your answer.
2: Well, thank you for the question. As I was saying a few minutes ago, I mean, around the time of the 2014 Scottish referendum, Friend, and there was really strikingly little impact on, on Welsh public attitudes. But what there was more quietly sort of, sort of voce, you be like, was, um, there was a, an awareness amongst, certainly when the referendum got very close late on, awareness amongst uh, many people and particularly in the um, in the Labour Party that if Scotland ever did vote to leave or you know, started on a process that led to it becoming independent, that would put Wales in a pretty difficult position. I mean, the, the centre of gravity in Welsh politics for at least 20 years now has been that of support for autonomy within the UK and I think the center of gravity within the Welsh Labour Party has been what we might call devolutionist unionism, certainly favoring some level of autonomy for Wales. You you could argue about exactly how much autonomy, but also very much firmly within the UK. But that support is predicated, I think, on the union being a a reasonably palatable, hospitable place for left and center people uh, in Wales. And I think the union has already become a less palatable place for many of those people with the sort of ideological direction of government in london i think if scotland ever voted to leave or in, a, in some other way started on a process where it was clearly leaving the uk i think that would cause more or less an existential crisis for much of of the center left in in wales um and i i remember very vividly being told about 10 years ago this by Um, Quite a senior figure in the Welsh government, who said that you know I could absolutely never support Welsh independence. I mean, kind of paused and and then said, "Until Scotland ever votes to go, Ah. because the idea that you know at the moment you can still believe in the UK as some sort of multinational entity, clearly an unbalanced one, but nonetheless a multinational entity. If Scotland leaves, then it's much more clearly England and a couple of little bits and." And of course, Northern Ireland may be on its own process that could uh, be pushing it away from the union. Um, and I think if if you're in a position then when it's very much a case of union with England or independence, then I think that's, that's a much more uncomfortable and, and difficult um, question uh, that, that many people in Wales might have to face.
1: I mean, you mentioned the centre-left. I mean, what of the centre-right? I mean, one of the interesting dynamics here as well is is, is Welsh Toryism, and I do get the sense that having had, I mean, for other reasons, contact with people like Stephen Crab and others, that it's not the same as an English Tory tradition, but they don't necessarily sort of push this out as, as, as a kind of an identity issue. But what happens to Welsh Toryism in that kind of dynamic?
2: Well, I th- I think uh, I mean there's all sorts of fascinating stories to be told about the whole history of Welsh Toryism. Um, historically, it has been a relatively unsuccessful political creed. Creed, as I said, you know, last um, had a higher share of the vote in Wales than in England in 1859. It's con- you know consistently the Welsh Tories have underperformed relative to England albeit in the last couple of general elections, that, that margin of Welsh Conservative underperformance has been diminishing. And of course, in December 2019 general election, they returned 14 Welsh Conservative MPs, their highest number since the high watermark of Thatcherism. Um, there's been a really interesting sort of though, direction for the Welsh Conservative Party under devolution. So, you know, they opposed devolution strongly in the 1997 referendum ran in the first devolved election in 1999 very unsuccessfully as a still pretty devo skeptic party. But then from about 2000 for at least 10 years, there was a gradual quiet process of slowly bringing the Conservatives more into the center ground of Welsh politics, both in terms of sort of socioeconomic policy, but also in terms of you know coming to accept devolution and trying to t- Take a more positive attitude towards it. That was very much the dominant attitude projected by the leadership in in the um, in what's now the Senate. But I think there was certainly a section of the Welsh Conservative Party's grassroots that never really came to um, be enthusiastic about devolution at all. If, if anything, was always you know, well, abs- if we absolutely must, but you know, thus far and no further. And what has been really striking in the last year or two has been the sense in which this devo-skeptic element of the Welsh Conservative Party is coming very much back into prominence. Mm. Uh, We're seeing some of the most clearly pro-devolution Welsh Conservative members of the Senate standing down at this year's election. And we're seeing the Welsh Party clearly seeming to pivot towards a more obviously sort of populist um, line, which which has included um, at least flirting with a strong Devo scepticism. I mean, partly, I think this is simply for immediate electoral reasons. Uh, the Welsh Tories feel they, I think correctly, that they leaked a lot of votes to UKIP in 2016. And, um, you know, they want to avoid doing so, again, to some sort of, whether it's UKIP or the abolish the Assembly Party or Farage's latest yeah. brands. You know, they want to avoid losing a whole bunch of votes to that section of the political spectrum in this year's Senate election, but there is also I think um, a renewed uh, appetite having kind of ticked Brexit off their agenda amongst I think a certain section of their party to now maybe target devolution as the next major project.
1: Just as maybe a final question on this kind of block of of issues, I mean if you then have a substantial part of the centre-right or the right, there's devolution sceptic, and substantial parts of the centre ground and the centre left drifting to maybe. I mean, this depends very much on what's happening in Scotland to more independence. Is that a recipe for a deeply polarised politics that Wales has not really experienced yet in the last 20 years?
2: Well, as I said earlier, I think uh, for much of the last 20 years or so, there's been a very clear consensus in Welsh politics amongst the vast majority of the membership of the Senate, but also seen in study after study, whether this is commercial polls or academic studies, where there was a a small section of people in the the population favouring independence, a very slightly smaller section of continued opponents to devolution. But the clear majority of people, no matter how you ask the question and who was asking it, favouring autonomy for Wales within the UK, some form of devolution. And people might be pretty vague as to how much devolution they had or exactly how much they wanted it or devolution on what. But that was where the clear consensus was. What we are seeing, I think, both at elite levels and this is starting to have some resonance with the public, is that consensus coming under pressure from both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. From increased interest in and support for independence, but also for an increasingly militant, vocal um, opposition to the idea of Welsh political autonomy at all. Um, and I think, you know, they're clearly still the, the centre of political gravity in Wales is clearly still behind devolution within the UK. But if the UK starts to feel increasingly uncomfortable for many um, in the centre and centre-left and if there is an increasingly sort of vibrant and um, militant devo skeptic um, kind of tone to the center right, then I think it's quite possible to see this consensus kind of gradually
1: being eroded so from both sides. Right. I mean, and that sort of leads on to maybe the final issues that sort of wanted to raise. I mean, this this is very much a podcast aimed towards, well, partly both to our students, but also to to audiences in the European Union that have kept coming back to us, just as the the, the, the UK and EU Centre that part, we're partly affiliated to as a department is about explaining the EU to the UK. Many of us on the European side of the department have ended up having to explain the UK to European interlocutors. Yeah. So one of the things we've drawn in on this is, and I mean, this is again comes back to the issue of Wales being such an important part of the UK, but often something that you have to signal to, to EU partners that this matters and this is actually a place that is also going to come under strain if things do are not handled well or 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 or, or mm. if, if if there is a a deterioration of relations. I mean, I, I find sometimes my Spanish colleagues end up in shock when I explain that the main newscaster, Hugh Edwards, is is seems to be very inclined towards Welsh nationalism. They find this deeply shocking, which is sort of amusing in itself. So it perhaps says more about Spain than the UK. But sort of in that sort of sense, I mean, what, what should we tell our, when it comes to Wales, what should we tell our our, our, our European partners? I mean, I mean, how should EU institutions and member states, I mean, they want stability. And one of the things, yeah. the great misunderstandings on, on the UK side is this idea that there's some EU plot to tear the UK apart. I mean, the, most EU states, institutions, even voters, just want the UK to be quiet yeah. and, and to sort of not cause trouble and just be something that can be handled and they can move on to dealing up with other problems to the south and east, particularly in, in the Mediterranean and Eastern Europe and Turkey. Mm. So so if how should EU institutions and member states, I mean, if they want stability on the islands of Britain and Ireland, h- h- what do they need to do to interact with the changing nature of Welsh politics? Should they stand back? Should they create lines of communication? Um, should I mean, where, what should they be, be, be attention, paying, paying attention to? So if you're an EU policymaker and trying to work out how to deal with what's happening in the UK, how do you interact with Wales? I
2: think quietly, probably. <laughs> I, mean, I think, you know, clearly in the major governments, in these, um, these islands outside the government in Dublin, that they have to deal with right now is the UK, but they need to quietly keep lines of communication to the other centres of power in the UK and I think yes, not kind of get involved in trying to push any particular agenda you know the union or you know the non-english nationalisms but just be aware that these things exist you know be aware who the major players are in the different national capitals and and I think be aware that well I, I suppose be aware fundamentally that um Within these islands, you know, the, the image that the UK likes to project of centuries of uninterrupted continuity is largely a false image. And, you know, you can go back several And there's been about roughly once a century since the time of Henry VIII. Major reorientations, you know, going back to you know, and at Henry's time, the Act of the Union that formally incorporated... Wales into the King of England, then the Union of Crowns early in the 17th century, then the 1707 Union of of the Kingdom of England and Scotland, then the 1800 Union with Ireland, then most of Ireland leaving again in 1922. I mean, frankly, we're about due another <laughs> an, an, another major reorientation in the political landscape of these these islands, and and that has actually been the pattern historically for for, for many centuries. That you know, this sort of stability and continuity that the UK likes to project is not a wholly false image, but it's a at least significantly um, embellished image. And just kind of keep a watching brief and keep talking to people in the different national capitals and be aware that, you know, it, it's not completely impossible that you could be getting at some point in a few years time application for membership from a Scottish government, for instance, or, you know, there there could be um, a fundamental change in the nature of, you know, several counties in the north of Ireland. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that should happen or will happen, but it's far from wholly implausible. And if we get those sorts of changes, then they will inevitably have some spillover effect for the other bits of the union, including the often forgotten bit, which is Wales.
1: Just maybe sort of just on this final and sort of these wider issues is, a, um, question in that sense is how do you think Wales is going to position itself towards the European Union over time and I'm, maybe I'm not trying to think this completely in political terms because obviously a lot of this is predicated on on Brexit and we all have our view I mean I, yeah. my particular view is there's a, a, a partial UK alignment back towards the EU system is inevitable but as long as England pol- English politics are in their current condition I doubt that would be membership right but I mean mm. that that often leaves Wales out of the calculation I mean as as a political culture and society, how do you think Wales is going to position itself to the EU from from in, in in the current circumstances?
2: Well, you you have the very clear kind of orientation of most of the kind of Welsh native political class that they you know regretted Brexit very much, that they wish it hadn't happened, and would would like to be able to kind of reorientate themselves as close to the EU as possible. Yet Brexit was something that Wales voted for, and mm. um, there hasn't been a great deal of. You know, a, a massive, and obvious change in, in, in all of the polling and studies that have been conducted since. I think we're already seeing Brexit have some significant effects on parts of the Welsh economy and society. Um, you know, the impact, for instance, that Brexit is having on the physical trade of Ireland, which until January this year, over 70% of all of Ireland's physical trade was all of the rest of Europe transited through three Welsh ports, right. um, and you know, that is suddenly changing and changing very substantially. Uh, we're going to see other, other changes, for instance, um, we're likely to see some pretty difficult uh, adjustment processes, to put it mildly, uh, facing Welsh agriculture, and what, what occupies a huge amount of the Welsh physical landscape. We don't yet know how that is going to feed back into political attitudes, Um, As I said there's been relatively little change since the 2016 referendum thus far but once the reality of some of these things starts to hit home then it may well bring some pretty radical changes
1: in how people think about the impact of Brexit. So maybe as a final question, is there anything we've missed? Is there any issue that in, in, in the last 40 minutes, that sort of we've tried to, you've, you've got such wonderful insight uh, to us and into this podcast. Is there anything we've missed that you'd want to add necessarily to the debate or discussion that you think maybe European policymakers or colleagues need to keep in mind?
2: I, th- I think that the main thing that you know, say people from outside the UK just need to keep in mind is that the UK is not a singular nation state. And arguably it never has been, which is not to say that there is not a a strong and important and valid sense of British national identity amongst many people. But there are also at times competing or sometimes complementary other senses of national identity. And those are, to some degree at least, coming more to the fore. Um, Because the one we haven't talked about much today, of course, is Englishness, which um, potentially can, within England's uh, compete with Britishness, um, but I think it is also likely to be important kind of dynamic within these islands over the coming years.
1: Well, Roger, thank you very much for that uh, fantastic contribution, for these fantastic ideas, for, for perspectives on Wales that are often sort of ignored from the side of the European Union, in particular not just ignored or often not necessarily taken into account in, in discussion in, in London and in Whitehall and Westminster. Um, those were some really fascinating perspectives and I think it does give us a lot of food for thought and hopefully many European colleagues and many European listeners food for thought that there is a Welsh dimension to the crisis the UK is facing in the next few years and it's a dimension that needs to be paid a lot of attention to. So thank you very much and goodbye.